All right, thanks for sticking with me through announcements. But we're gonna jump into the message tonight. If you've been around the last couple of weeks, we have been going through a series called Renewal. And so Dawson kicked us off with that a couple of weeks ago. We talked about humility and brokenness, which for some reason just keeps being a theme that God keeps speaking over us, which is awesome. We need to be humble, we need to be broken. And then last week, Chris took us a little bit further and specifically addressed loneliness. And he talked about how loneliness oftentimes feels like a door, like it's a place that we keep slamming into. But if we actually choose to meet with God in the loneliness, it becomes a threshold for intimacy instead of a door. It was so good, so convicting. So tonight I was like, how do I even follow that up? That was so good. I got ministered to from the Lord last week. And it's funny, this last week I got sick, which was not fun. Whatever sickness you guys have that's been going around, I think I got it. And so, but here's the thing. Saturdays are usually Chris's and my Sabbath day. And so what that means is we take a break. We spend the whole day with Jesus. We turn off our phones. So some of you texted me. I don't text back on Saturdays. It's awesome. And we basically, we give the day to rest and we give the day to the Lord, um, which sounds really ideal and really awesome. Except that if there's like a Mary Martha continuum, I'm like on the Martha side of things, trying to learn how to be a Mary. And so slowing down and resting is super, super hard for me. If you're like me, send me your tips. It's great, we're learning. God is stretching me a lot in that area of my life. And so we got to Saturday and I was like, I need to rest. I don't know how to rest. God, what do I do? And so I'm sitting looking at my bookshelf that has like a hundred books on it because we're in seminary and we just keep buying books. It's ridiculous, but we love it. And I'm looking and I see this little book that I bought a couple months ago, but I haven't ever actually read called Heinz Feet in High Places. Have any of you guys read that? A few of you? It's like millions and millions of copies sold, but it was like 40 or 50 years ago. So it's a little like maybe not as relevant now, but it's this beloved story that's an allegory, um, basically about what the Christian life is like. And so the main character in it, her name is Much Afraid, which you're like, oh, I can relate to that. That's how I felt as soon as I started reading. And basically she's this girl living, taking care of sheep for the shepherd who, if you already guessed it, is Jesus. And so she's taking care of Jesus's sheep She's crippled, she's ugly, she doesn't have a lot going for her. She's much afraid and her family has all kinds of fear issues. I can't even remember all their names, but anything fear related, she's got it, she's struggling, she needs God to come. And so Jesus comes to her one day and he's like, hey, I'm gonna invite you on the journey of a lifetime. Do you wanna go on a journey with me? And she's like, yes, anything with you, Jesus, I wanna go. He's like, okay, here's the thing though, it's not gonna be an easy journey. She's like, that's okay. As long as I'm with you, I'll go. He's like, no, really, it's not gonna be easy. She's like, that's okay, sign me up. I'm gonna go with you. And so she begins this journey with Jesus. And basically they're trying to ascend to the heights of the mountains, which in the story basically represents heaven. So it's this journey to heaven, to the kingdom of love, as it calls it, which is a little cheesy, but also really sweet. And so she's so zealous. She's so ready to take on this journey with Jesus. But pretty soon things start to get hard as they do in all of our lives with Jesus. I don't know why we think life with Jesus gets easier the longer we walk with him. Um, being made to look like Jesus is hard <laughs> and we're gonna quit if we think it's gonna get easier the longer we walk with him. So Much Afraid begins to learn this. So they start out in a meadow and it's beautiful. And then Jesus is like, hey, I'm actually gonna go leave and go do some stuff. If you call out to me, I'll come real quick and come right back. But I'm actually gonna give you two companions in this journey. 
And so I'm sitting on my couch on Saturday and I'm like, who are the two companions? Like, what is this? And Jesus is like, I've picked them out special for you. They're like the best ones. They're the strongest. They're gonna teach you the most. You're gonna become the most like me if you walk with him. And she's like, yeah, anything, Jesus. Like, what have you say? You pick best. And he looks at her and he says, it's sorrow and suffering. They're gonna be your companions for the rest of the journey. And she cries, which is really relatable. And I was sitting on the couch like, I might cry too, because that's a little too real for how I feel right now. And so she begins the next stage of her journey with sorrow and suffering as her companions. And the irony of the story is that she's crippled and she actually cannot walk up a mountain without help. And so she has to choose to put her hands in sorrow and suffering's hands in order to be able to climb. And so the analogy continues. They go through a meadow that's beautiful, but then God leads her to a desert in the opposite direction of where she's trying to go. And then he takes her to the ocean that's lonely and cold. And then he takes her up another mountain and down another valley and up and down and up and down. But what struck me, all of it really struck me. I was like, yep, a desert season. I've lived that. I'm like, oh, yep, the high highs, the low lows, I get it. But Much Afraid makes this pretty profound statement when she's walking through the forest. Now, she's been through a lot at this point, but she's walking through the forest. It's a pretty straight path. She can see just a little bit in front of her, but there's just this fog everywhere. And it's monotonous, it's dreary, it's kind of cold. And she begins to talk about how it's the hardest part of the journey because there's nothing really good or really bad happening. There's just not a lot happening the monotony, having to continue to steward her mind and her heart and her thoughts step by step, day by day. That was the hardest part of the journey. And I'm sitting on my couch and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's right. Like sometimes when really hard things happen, we like bolster up every bit of strength and resilience we have. And we're like, I can face this. I can keep pressing in. But I think it's those seasons where we just have to wait where we don't really know where we're going, but we like kind of have direction and we have the strength to do it, but we're getting more tired. And it really is more the battle with our head and our heart that gets harder. And I just begin to resonate with Much Afraid so much. And I was thinking about this this week because I read the whole book on Saturday because I was just like so into the book. If you haven't read it, and I would say, even if you're having a harder season, spending time with God, pick it up and read it because it, it might just unlock something in you to meet with God. But as I was reading that book, I was thinking about the fact that I was speaking on renewal this week. And I wanted to just share this definition of renewal because I think it gives a little bit more life to this word and why we picked it as the title of this series. But renewal means the restoration, the repair or rebuilding of something that is worn out, run down or broken. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how renewal is actually the maintenance that we need to keep journeying forward with Jesus. It's what's needed if we're actually gonna look like Jesus on the other side of our journey with him. Because we can keep walking or we can give up, but if we're not doing it with him, we're not gonna look transformed on the other side. Because God's not a God of quick fixes. And so God can come, he can heal us in a moment, he can transform us. But even in those times, there's a journey before the healing and there's a journey afterwards. And most of what God does in us is actually in the middle. We live our lives mostly in the middle. I loved what Chris said last week of, we can't live encounter to encounter because we're gonna get 
super like disillusioned in the middle. We have to learn how to meet with God in the spaces in between if we're gonna keep journeying with him. Like I've said this in Awakening before, but I'm like, I wanna be the 85 year old grandma in the front responding. But the way that we do that is that we learn how to press in with Jesus in the middle of the journey when it's monotonous and we're tired and our thoughts and our feelings just don't want to. The scripture that is super near and dear to my heart and probably could be a sermon in of itself is Isaiah 43, 18 through 19, which says this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I love this scripture for a lot of reasons. Um, but specifically tonight, what I love about it is that God is like, do you not perceive it? And anytime God asks us a question in scripture, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's wanting us to look at it a second time and figure out what he's speaking to us. And so what he's saying is, I'm at work doing a new thing in you, but do you not perceive it? And I love that because God is always up to something new. He's up to something new inside each one of us, but our ability to perceive it or not doesn't, like, doesn't negate the fact that he's doing something new. Oftentimes we can't tell what he's doing in us. We can't see it in ourselves, which is why we have to look back at the beginning of Isaiah 43 to more clearly see this. So Isaiah 43, one through two says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What that means is that he's doing a new thing in us in the journey, in the fire, in the flood, in the different seasons, he's doing something new. And so this newness that God is speaking about, this new thing that he's wanting to release in us is actually not a state of arrival that we ever get to. Sometimes I think when we read that, we're like, God's doing something new and I'm gonna be perfect once it happens, whatever it is, once he comes and snaps his fingers, then the new thing comes. I think newness is actually more a work of renewal that God is doing in us. And it's something that happens, that's forged in us in the trials of life in the step-by-step, day-by-day. Honestly, guys, I think most of the renewal that God does in us is in the waiting, in the places where we're begging God to come and move and make us whole the most. And the way of the kingdom of God is that when God comes to bring new life, when he comes to bring renewal, a death has to come first. Death leads to resurrection and new life in the kingdom of God. And if you're anything like me, you're like, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like death. I don't like pain. I don't want sorrow and suffering as my companions in this journey. Can we just forget all that stuff? And can God just snap his fingers and make me new? Like who would actually willingly choose sorrow and suffering as their personal path to renewal and resurrection? Jesus. <sighs> And if he's the one we're trying to be made to look like, that means we're gonna have to follow him where he leads us, even if it's not exactly where we wanna go. And what I loved in Hind's Feet in High Places, there's moments where she's like, this is the opposite direction of where we're trying to go. And he's like, but this is the path that you have to take 
for me to be able to renew you so that when you actually get to where you're trying to go, you actually look like me and you can actually stay in the place where I'm trying to take you. And so as it was for her, so it is for us, you guys. God is longing to renew us to be made more like him, but it's a process. It's not a snap of fingers. It's not magic. We can't change ourselves. God is the one who has to come and change our hearts. But that doesn't mean that we just sit around doing nothing. We have to participate in this journey. And ironically, I even think the phrase like waiting on God stirs up some inaccurate feelings in us. Like I was thinking about this and I was like, when I think about waiting, I think about being on the I-10 during rush hour traffic in a dead stop and I'm frustrated and angry and I kind of think I'm gonna die and also I'm just hungry and I wanna go home and I feel frustrated and powerless and angry and upset. Or you guys know when you go to a doctor's office and they're like, make sure you're there early. And so you get there early, but then they're never on time. And then the nurse comes and takes you and then you're sitting in there and you're still waiting for the doctor and the doctor comes for two minutes and you're like, I just waited an hour and a half for two minutes and $200 with this doctor. Like, I think that's the picture of waiting that we have in our mind because oftentimes that's our human experience with it. It plays on our emotions. It makes us feel stagnant and purposeless. It almost like makes us feel like a victim to whatever's happening to us. Like whenever the doctor shows up, whenever the traffic clears up. But I think we misunderstand what the Lord actually means when he invites us to wait on him if that's the picture that we have in our heads. Because if you actually look at the words that are used in the Bible, um, the authors actually used really specific words to mean specific things. And so waiting on God in scripture is meant to be understood more so as like lying in wait, meaning like a cat that's ready to pounce and eat a mouse or I don't know, whatever lions eat. Or like laying a trap. So you're like setting a trap and you're waiting to see what's gonna happen. So there's an expectancy to the type of waiting that scripture describes. Another way of thinking about it is, is like a lingering. And lingering to me is like a positive thing. Like you only linger usually if you're enjoying something. And so there's even this place of like enjoyment in the waiting on God of like, man, I'm just excited for him to show up. I'm gonna linger here. I'm gonna sit longer or another way of thinking about it is to look eager, eagerly. And so you're looking eagerly of like, where is God? Where is he gonna come from? What direction? What's he gonna do when he's gonna make his plan known to me? And it makes me think of the parable of the 10 virgins, which is in Matthew 25, which we're not gonna take time to read that tonight. Um, but if that's something that you're wrestling with of like waiting on God, I encourage you to spend some time in that scripture because it describes people who are waiting on God, but really they fall asleep and they're not prepared and they're not looking for Jesus. And then it describes other people who are waiting on God and they're prepared. And so when he actually comes back, they're like, I'm ready, I'm going where he's going. And they follow him and they chase him and they don't miss the moment that God shows up because they were actively waiting for him to come. And so when we say waiting on God, we're not saying I'm a couch potato, gonna go take a nap and eat some snacks and God do your thing, let me know when you want me to come participate. Instead, it's, it's this place of anticipation and activation. It's a place where we're engaged in the journey that God has us in, even if we don't understand what he's doing in that moment. And so as we wait for God to replace and repair and heal and fix all that is broken and run down and depleted in us, 
we do so with expectancy and intention. The beautiful thing about the Bible is that when it tells us to do something, like wait on the Lord, it gives us promises for why we're supposed to do that. And so I just wanted to quickly just run through a few of those. But Isaiah 40, 31 tells us that God will renew strength in us in the waiting. And if you really just take a couple seconds to think about that, that's crazy. As we wait, he's gonna renew strength in us. And so there's something that he's wanting to do in us that we can't do for ourselves if we'll just wait on him. Lamentations 3.25 tells us that he will be good to us in the waiting. And if you've ever read Lamentations, literally it's a book of laments written by Jeremiah because his life was really, really hard, much harder than my life. And in the middle of that book, in the middle of the pain and suffering, he's like, but God's good to those who wait on him. Psalm 37.34 promises us that there is an inheritance for those who wait on God and follow after him. I don't really know what inheritance means, but that sounds like an awesome thing that I wanna be a part of. And so if we don't know how to lead our hearts, you guys, we're gonna miss out on the strength that God has us has for us, the good things that he has for us, the inheritance. If we don't know how to lead our hearts in the waiting, we're gonna lose heart in the journey and we're gonna walk away before renewal can actually be completed in us. And it's a little cheesy, but our culture hates this idea of leading our own hearts. Like the tagline to just follow your heart. Like you go to Target, it's on t-shirts, it's on tote bags. And you're like, I don't like that, but I like it. Like, yeah, follow your heart, get what you want. Or with people, we're like, I'm offended. And so I'm gonna cancel you. Or actually, I'm just gonna ghost you because that actually feels better to me. I don't feel like dealing with that. Or we go to the other side of things and we stay frantically busy all the time because we're like, the waiting actually makes me so anxious that I can't handle it. And so if my day is not plotted out A to Z with every moment in between, I'm gonna have an anxiety attack because I can't take it. That's not normal. That's American culture. Other cultures are not like that. Or when we're sitting waiting for our Chick-fil-A and it takes more than 10 minutes, I'm like, I'm so upset. That chicken should be in my belly right now. Again, not normal. Like what happened to patients? <laughs> but culturally, we've begun to buy into these ideas of I'm gonna follow what I want. I'm gonna give myself what I want because I feel it, because I need it. I'm gonna give in to the emotions and the thoughts. I'm not gonna lead my heart. I'm gonna let my heart or my stomach or whatever lead me to where I wanna go. And our culture is providing more and more opportunities than ever to just numb out. Like I feel it in myself. I was getting my eyes checked like three days ago and the doctor leaves for like one minute. I'm like, I should get on my phone. Like what's happened in the three minutes since I checked it last? I'm like, why? But we're hardwired that we can't just sit. We have, to, we have to distract. And I know none of that is new to you all. You're like you and every other person who preaches a message says that. But I, I think it's important for us to realize that if we don't choose differently, what our culture does is going to become our default. If we do not learn how to lead our hearts, our default is gonna be what our culture does. And maybe right now, that's you know getting impatient for Chick-fil-A, but over time, if we numb out to the ability to lead our own hearts, it's gonna lead us in a direction we don't wanna go. And the beautiful thing about the Lord is that he knows 
what culture is going to do. And he's given us scripture as our plumb line throughout all of life. Um, and I, I'm in seminary. I just started a theology class this week. And to be honest with you, theology is like not my favorite class ever. I'm like, this is one we just got to get through, you know, because that's what you just need to know. You need to be trained in that. But I loved what last night I was reading a lot, a lot of theology things. And I was reading, it was like, we have to know theology because we have to know the Bible. And we have to know the Bible because not every circumstance in life or cultural thing that's going on is specifically talked about in the Bible. But if we don't actually know the Bible, if we're not a student of the Bible, we're never gonna be able to make a biblical decision based off of the culture of our day. We have to sow into knowing scripture and knowing God's word so that as things come up, rather than being like, I feel like this is what God would do. We can actually go to scripture and say, well, this is his nature and this is his character and this is how he handles things. And so based upon that, not based upon my gut feeling, this is how I'm gonna follow the Lord. Does that make sense? And so there's this big understanding of like, oh, I know what Christianity is. Like I know a lot. But if we operate from that mindset and we stop being students of the word of God at any point in our life, we're gonna miss it. We're gonna stop growing. Um, because honestly, guys, I think the more we walk with Jesus, the more we're like, I know nothing. Like I keep knowing less and less as I get to know him more and more. I realize that what I know matters very little because ultimately it's not about what Stosh knows about the Bible. Hopefully anything that I know that's communicated tonight, you forget, but anything that the Lord is speaking to you tonight, the truth that he has for you, like would that get louder and louder and louder? And so with that, would you guys turn to Psalm 51 with me? This is gonna be our main text um, that we're gonna camp out for the rest of the night. And the reason why we are turning to Psalm 51 is that we're gonna dig into the life of David a little bit. And probably most of us are familiar with David, but if you're not, just some quick background about him. He was the eighth son of some guy named Jesse and quite possibly was actually an illegitimate son, which is very interesting. We're not gonna dive into that tonight, but interesting given that God chooses the least likely people to use. Talk about humility and brokenness. So David was a nobody. He was a shepherd boy. He lived out in the fields. And just a highlight reel about him is that as a teenager, he killed Goliath, who was nine foot nine approximately, which is terrifying. And he also apparently before then regularly killed lions and bears on his own out in the middle of the wilderness with his slingshot. So he was a weird kid. He led Israel in their military campaigns. He was a warrior king. He was a beloved leader. And what's known about David is that he was a man after God's own heart. And so there's actually quite a bit of scripture written about David's life. Um, and then there's a lot of Psalms that he wrote, which is basically like his diary that God gave us on display, which is actually kind of cool, but terrifying if it was my diary. So on the flip side with David is that he was an adulterer and a murderer. He experienced fear, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment. His family was pretty messed up. His best friend was killed in battle. He himself almost died multiple times and he was almost dethroned by his own son. Talk about rejection to like the deepest level. And I say all that because sometimes I think we get caught up on like all the positives about people in the Bible and we miss the fact that they're real people. Like this is not a fairy tale that was written down. 
This was a real man who loved God and spent his whole life chasing after God. And I'm so thankful that we have the Psalms to look at because it's an inside look into what David's inner life with the Lord was and how he led his heart in good times, bad times, in between times, all of them. And so if you've ever wondered like, how did a teenage boy kill Goliath? How did he get the courage? I think the answer is in the Psalms. Or how did he endure the nearly 15 years between his anointing to appointing? Like how did he lead his heart as he waited for God's promise? How did he continue walking with God after committing some pretty terrible sins that actually cost multiple people their lives? Like how did he stay in the game with God and lead his heart? And the answer is that he led his heart to God in those places. And the Psalms are an inside look into what that looks like. And so this particular Psalm, Psalm 51, if you look, um, it'll probably say something like written after the prophet Nathan comes to talk to David after everything that happened with Bathsheba. And so arguably this might've been the lowest moment of David's life. Um, And so talk about his lowest low and we're getting an inside look into what his heart process was. But I think there's a lot of wisdom that we can grasp from how David goes about leading his heart here. So let's pick up in verse one. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I think you can feel the emotion in those words. Um, I was reading a commentary earlier today. Um, Any of you familiar with Spurgeon? Charles. Charles. Anyways, he was like a pretty famous preacher back in the day. And he like almost refused to write a commentary on this psalm because he was like, it's so deep. It's so personal. It's so emotional. Um, Thankfully, I found someone else's commentary on it, which is great. Um, But there's just a sobriety here of like, this is real. Um, There's an honesty here. And I think as we think about leading our hearts to the Lord, um, Chris touched on this last week, but there's just an honesty that we have to come to. There's an honesty about who we are. There's an honesty about the sin in our lives, honesty about our frustration with God, our frustration with ourselves. Like the Lord is longing for honesty, for us to come and be real with the contents of our hearts. But there's something here that is important in that journey. It's not honesty just for honesty's sake. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a friend who was like, hey, by the way, like all last week, I just hated your guts and I just needed you to know. And you're like, what? Like, what do I do with that kind of honesty? Like, that's not helpful. Um, And sometimes I think we can come to God and finally be honest and just dump on him. And then we don't actually let him speak into it. And we don't take ownership. And that's not the kind of honesty that I'm talking about here. But I'm talking about not trying to cover ourselves up, which is what David is not trying to do here. And there's a conviction that precedes the forgiveness here. And I think that's important to understand. God is longing to forgive and reconcile us to himself, but there's this place of of ownership and conviction that we have to walk in first. Here we see that David is pleading for the Lord to come and forgive him, but it's based off of David's conviction in his own heart. 
And so I think there's a place for us guys that as we wait on God, as we lead our hearts, that we're broken and we see our brokenness and we're actually broken by it. We're affected by it. And I'm not just talking about the places of like sexual immorality or the places where we're like, I keep sinning in that one thing and I can't get free. But there's even places of just brokenness in us where we feel trapped. Like, man, like these anxious thoughts that I don't even know where they're coming from. Like I can't get free. Or maybe just tendency to do or say certain things. They're like, I just don't know how to change myself. And it's okay, but we have to take ownership for who we are. There's no victim mentality here at work and what David is saying. And sometimes I think we can want to play the blame game of like, yeah, I said that mean thing, but they, they made me do it. And God's like, okay, well, they should deal with your, their sin. You deal with yours. We can't blame shift. Or I think a big one sometimes for us in college is that we are outside of our parents' household and a lot of our parents did really great things, but no parents perfect. And so we start to see some of the cracks in our parents' parenting. And we can be like, I'm never gonna end up like my mom, never. But if you don't take responsibility for yourself, you probably will end up just like your mom because you're gonna keep blaming her for the things that you don't like about her that are gonna get reflected in yourself. So that makes sense. Like there's this place where we have to take ownership for the contents of our own hearts and take responsibility regardless of how it got there. David's dad, if David was an illegitimate son, there was a generational thing that he was born into where sexual morality was normal. But he didn't sit there and be like, this is just what I was born into. So what dad taught me. He's broken by his own sin, by his own decisions. But as, guys, as we step into that place of conviction, there's also an important place where we don't flip it back on ourselves. And so sometimes I think we have in our minds with repentance of like, God, I'm a horrible person. Like, I'm the worst in the whole world. Let me roll on the ground in dust and ashes to prove how unworthy I am. And I think if that's what we view repentance as, we're also missing it. Because if we're just self-deprecating or tearing ourselves apart, we're actually just furthering the pain in our own hearts and making it harder to step out of. We have to be broken by our sin, but we have to allow this to drive us to a place of repentance because a repentant heart is a heart that God then comes and begins to renew and to change. And I love here that David uses the phrase wash away. He's asking God to come and wash him, wash away all of the, all of the sin, all of the brokenness and to do a work of cleansing in him. And so it's not just God, here's my sin, take it away. It's God, come take away my sin and would you actually replace it with more of you? And what I love about God is he isn't like, just get rid of the bad stuff. He's like, give me the bad stuff and take the good stuff from me. Be renewed, be cleansed, be changed in your heart. If we're truly repentant, then we're desiring purity. And I don't just mean like sexual purity, I mean just wholeness is what the word purity means. And there's a wholeness that we can have only in Jesus if we come and we exchange the pieces of ourselves that don't reflect him. So how do we lead our hearts in the waiting? We pick up a spirit of repentance. And this is just kind of an idea that someone brought up in our staff meeting this week, but I like the phrasing of spirit of repentance versus just repenting, because it's actually, if we can take up a spirit of repentance, it's a mindset that we're taking as we walk and as we live our lives. And rather than repentance being like, I'm going down life's way and oh, I messed up. Now I got to repent and get back on track. 
a spirit of repentance is saying, as I live my life, as I walk with God, I'm getting increasingly more sensitive to what he's doing in me, what he's doing around me, and what I get off track. And so a spirit of repentance is a heart that's soft to the Lord's correction. And today, as I was reflecting on this in college, I had a friend named Amanda. And I remember we were driving back from Awaken one night. It was just her and me in the car. And we're driving, and she's going 55 miles per hour. And I'm kind of like, you know, cars are whizzing past us. I'm like, why is she going so slow? And she kind of looks over at me apologetically and she's like, I'm so sorry. God has convicted me about speeding lately. And so I have to go 55. I have to exactly go the speed limit. And I'm like, who are you? Like, who cares about that? I'm like, we live in Phoenix. We're gonna get killed if we don't go at least 20 over. I'm like, oh. Yeah. We survived, clearly. God protected us. But what I love about Amanda is that she was so sensitive to the Lord that even though that's a silly example, like there were so many areas of her life where she's so sensitive to the Lord. And I remember she would come to me and she would repent for things. And I'm like, okay, you're good. Like that wasn't an issue, but God, she was so in tune that God was like changing the smallest pieces of her heart to make him, to make her look more like him. And so it wasn't even like these big sin places. It was just small redirections and corrections. And to me, that's such a picture of the spirit of repentance where it's more about just coming into alignment with God than anything else. And so just leaning into his voice, even if it means not speeding, you can ask God about that afterwards. All right, so how do we lead our hearts in the waiting? We pick up a spirit of repentance. Let's jump to verse six. It says this, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. How do we lead our hearts in the waiting? It says right here, we sow into faithfulness and wisdom. And today as I was praying, I really felt like the Lord was emphasizing this faithfulness piece. Um, because sometimes I think we're like, God, make me faithful. Like, did he snap his fingers and change me? And we're like, no. It's kind of like when you're like, Lord, make me patient. And you're like, actually, that's a process usually that God leads you on. And I felt like the Lord with faithfulness today was like, was talking to me about how I think sometimes we think faithfulness is something that's forged in us in church settings. So like at an awaken, at life group, in discipleship, in our own time with God. But that's viewing the spiritual parts of our lives as compartmentalized moments in our week. And that's actually not true. God's with us every moment, every step, every day, every breath. And so faithfulness is actually cultivated more in the day-to-day, in the waiting, in the mundane than anything else. And so if you wanna cultivate faithfulness in your life and lead your heart there, go to class. Do your homework, make your bed. You might change the world if you do these things. Or maybe commit to things instead of being like, but what if a better option comes? Commit, be faithful to things. I remember there's a story about Jimmy Seibert who's the founder of the Antioch movement. And in college, he was like, I'm gonna change the world. We're gonna plant churches. We're gonna see people saved. We're gonna go to the nations. Like, it's gonna be awesome. Jesus is gonna return. And this older guy who was like a mentor came and stayed with Jimmy and Jimmy like followed him around for days. He was like, I'm gonna do everything this guy does. And the guy like notices him hovering and he's like, bro, you need to learn faithfulness. And Jimmy's like, no, no, no. Like, tell me the secret to reaching the world for Jesus. And he's like, dude, you didn't even make your bed this morning. 
And Jimmy's like, what does my bed have anything to do with anything? And this man just looked at him and he's like, man, if you can't learn to be faithful in the little, if you can't even be faithful in your day to day, why would God entrust you with nations someday? And I don't say that to like put the hammer down on any of us. I think about it every day. I'm like, I have to make my bed and be like Jimmy. (laughs) But it would be foolish to think that I'm gonna have this spiritual discipline of faithfulness in my life if I can't get the small matters in my life in order and be faithful to them. And so I would encourage you in that place, if you're like, I am not faithful, look at the small things like go to bed at a certain time, feed yourself. Like these are just parts of growing up in life, but God actually uses them to cultivate faithfulness in us. And I specifically felt like there might be people in the room tonight that are like, I don't even know why I'm in college. I hate school. I hate learning. I don't even know if I want to use this degree. And I would just throw out there that it might be more about what God is doing in your character in the season than it is about your education. And it might be more about just putting faithfulness in you that's actually going to let you be released to go live your calling someday. Um, Like your 20s are a call to come and die. (laughs) They're a call to come and serve other people's vision. And it's a time to come. And I'm in my 20s. I'm 25. I'm right there with you. I'm like, all right death to self. God, come and make me look more like you. Because if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. And we're going to get so disgruntled with life and the waiting and the journey that we're going to miss him. And so we have to learn faithfulness. So we sow into faithfulness, but we also sow into wisdom. And with this, I just want to point us back to the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. And It cannot be lost on us that God has something fresh for us every time we open the Bible. And I know there's probably a lot of us in this room, myself included, that grew up in church and did all the things and have read the Bible and we know the stories and we're like, I read it and I don't get anything fresh out of it. And this is a little bit cheesy, but I felt like this was the phrase God gave me today. And he said, if we think we know, we won't grow. So as we approach the Bible, if we think we already know, we're gonna miss it. We're not gonna grow. But if we can approach scripture with a learner's heart, I feel like the Lord was like, there's so much that I wanna teach. Let's jump to verse nine. It says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And I want to just point out here that the word renew here implies that David actually already had a pure heart and a steadfast spirit. So when God is coming and renewing, God is renewing something that he already had. His new nature in Christ hadn't been lost. So even though he had sinned and messed up, it wasn't like he just got kicked, you know? It was like, no more David. There's nothing good in him. He needed God to come and remind him of who he actually was and to renew the identity that God had actually given him. And so when God renews us, he's not saying, you're bad. Come and I'll make you good again. What he's actually saying is that, come here, come close to me. Let go of what's hurting, let go of the sin, let go of the pain, and let me remind you of your identity in Christ. And we don't have tons of time to go into this tonight, but Romans 6 is titled Dead to Sin, Alive in Christ. If you have not read it, and if you've not been rocked by it, read it again until it rocks you. Because what Romans 6 tells us is that we're dead to sin. So even if I sin, I'm dead to it. That part of me is dead. Because if we're saved and if we've received Jesus, when Jesus looks at us, 
All he sees is the righteousness of Jesus at work in us. That is a good word. Yeah, that's the hope of the gospel right there. It's not that, wow, Stosh cleaned herself up and now she gets to go to heaven. No, I'll never clean myself up enough for that. But I'm dead to the power of sin because Christ has come in me. And so guys, when we're speaking of renewal, God is coming and he's reminding us of who we actually already are. He's coming and saying, this is your identity. You tried to fall off the track back there, but I'm not gonna let you. This is your lane. Come back to it. Come back to who I've made and called and created you to be. He's reminding us of our new nature and teaching us how to walk more and more in the identity and life that he's already given to us. But it's not a new gift. It's a reminder of the gift that he already chose to give us at the cross. We were made new when we received the gift of salvation. And so renewal is the process by which we become more and more like him on this side of eternity. If you wanna know more about that, it's a two and a half hour long D-School teaching. So just come talk to me and I'll tell you more. The main takeaway is this, we're dead to sin. So it doesn't matter if you feel like you're dead to sin or not. If we press into renewal, this is a reality that we can live in more and more. And so when we choose sin, the influence of our new nature gets a little lost though. It gets muffled and buried. We forget who we really are when we choose sin. And so because of this, we might feel forsaken or lost or left by God as David was talking about here. And so as we lead our hearts in the waiting, we have to remind ourselves that his presence and his spirit has not left us. And I love what we were singing at the beginning of the night. He always comes running. He always comes running. And even much afraid in her journey to the heights, no matter what happened, as soon as she called on Jesus, he was like, like right there. And I love that picture because there's so many times in life where I'm like, God, where the heck are you? I need you. And the promise is that he's there. It's not true because I feel it. It's true because he said it. So we remind ourselves that his presence and his spirit hasn't left us. And I love the picture too, that sometimes he's so close that we can't even see him because it's almost, you know, when things get too close, they're like blurry, they're out of focus. And sometimes the Lord is so close that he's out of focus that we can't even recognize that he's there, which I, I love that picture. So we remind ourselves of that. And we also ask him to restore the joy of our salvation to us. And what I think is interesting here is that David's not saying, God, give me my new nature back. His new nature wasn't gone, but his joy was. The joy of his salvation actually was gone. And so here we see a heart cry that as we're leading our hearts along the journey, we're gonna have to say, God, would you bring the joy of my salvation back? He asks for the joy of his salvation in a willing spirit. And so along the way, as we're leading our hearts for like, I don't feel joy. I don't even know what joy means. It's a place to ask God to come. It's not something we conjure up in ourselves. It's something that we ask him to give to us along with a willing spirit. Let's jump to verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. How do we lead our hearts in the waiting? We lean into thanksgiving and we also give away what God is doing in us. And what I mean by thanksgiving is that we practice gratitude and thankfulness. So we get in the habit of saying, God, you're great, you're powerful, you're awesome, you're a creator. And we also spend time saying, 
God, thank you for this cup of coffee that I'm drinking. Thank you for a car. Thank you that I get to go to school. Thank you that I get to go to a church and worship. And we, we practice looking at what God has already given and remembering and reflecting on it. And I, I honestly think, guys, that Thanksgiving is one of the most underrated spiritual disciplines. First of all, because it's so easy. Like, even if you're like, thank you for my shoes and my pants and my shirt. Like, there's three things that God's given you. Like, that's awesome. But it's so powerful because as we're leading our hearts, this is one of the ways that we reframe our mindsets and we lead our hearts to God. And specifically, it's because when we're grateful, it, it grows our trust with the Lord because we actually rightly see him and we rightly see his work in our lives. And specifically, as we build trust with him, he can then begin to call us out. And that spirit of repentance, actually, we like trust God's voice. So when he corrects us, instead of being like, oh, that hurt, we're like, oh, I know him. I trust him. He's calling me out for my good. And specifically, I felt like the Lord was just highlighting tonight that Thanksgiving is a critical weapon, especially if we're caught up in sexual sin. And the reason why is because sexual sin, whatever form, is rooted in lust. And lust is this insatiable need for more. Nothing fills, nothing satisfies. There's never enough. And Thanksgiving is the opposite spirit. Thanksgiving says, I have enough. This is who God is. This is what God has provided. And so if we're gonna rewire those parts of our brain, if we're gonna be defensive against sexual sin, then we have to give ourselves to the practice of thanksgiving because then we'll learn to rest in the place that God is enough, which is extremely, extremely powerful. So we lean into thanksgiving, but we also give away what God is doing in us. Um, if you ever meet with me for discipleship or probably if you just hang out with me, I'm like, what is God doing in your life? Mostly because I wanna know, like, what is God doing in you? That's more interesting than talking about the weather or something else like that. But also because whatever God is doing in you, he's probably wanting to do through you. And so if I'm meeting with you and God's like giving you breakthrough, I'm like, pray for me. I need some of that. Or if God is like downloading some deep truth to you, I'm like, I wanna know, I wanna learn. There's beauty in us learning together what God is doing. And so if that's something that you're like, I don't know what God is doing in this season, Maybe you've gotten a little lost in the waiting and that's a place of leading your heart back to the Lord and saying, what are you doing in me in this season? Because everything about the kingdom of God is about giving it away. Everything that God gives us is, is up for grabs to then be given away. And I love this quote by Anne Voskamp, I think is how you say her last name. But I think this pretty much says it all. It says, you've got to risk your position on the inside for those on the outside, or you risk losing everything, even your own soul. You've got to give your gifts, or they may become your idols, your identity, and you become the walking dead. If your living isn't about giving, then you're already dying. You've got to use the life you've been given to give others life. Give relief or find none. And I love that. If you need to see that again, come find me later. But that is the principle of the kingdom. We're meant to give away. And especially when we feel stuck in the waiting, when we feel purposeless, we feel like nothing's happening, we gotta go participate in what God is doing in other people and join in that. Enough said about that. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. 
How do we lead our hearts in the waiting? We bring our weakness and brokenness as an offering to God. And I'm not gonna touch too much on this because we've talked a lot about brokenness and humility, but I felt like God just wanted to give us a picture of a seed. And seeds look dead from the outside and then they get buried in the ground, which quite literally is what we do. We bury bodies in the ground. So that picture of death and resurrection is so embodied in a seed. But do you know what a seed has to do in order to grow? It has to split in half. It has to be broken open. And the same is true for us. We have to go to the place of death. We have to allow God to split us open, to break us open, because then growth and life and resurrection can come out. And if anybody thinks that God is not in science, he is because seeds, little things. All right, verse 18. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And some of that may not feel super relevant to our 21st century context, but what I wanna point out here is that David ends this whole prayer of leading his heart to God with praying for the city that he lives in. And so as we've gone through this Psalm and you can pull this back out and look at this again, we see that he looks in, he looks at the contents of his heart, he looks up, he gets his eyes on God. And then here ending, he begins to look out at the world around him. And one caution I would give us is we lead our hearts. We've got to look in. We've got to take inventory of what's there. We've got to get our eyes back up on God. But if we stay stuck in that inner place, we're going to get stuck. We're not meant to be introspective all the time. Um, especially if you're like someone who is not an external processor, an internal processor. I couldn't think of what it was. I am one of those. Holla. Um, we'll get stuck inside or we'll have like 30 journal pages of all these pent up emotions, but like we'll just be drowning there. Um, and so there's this place that we have to get our eyes up on the Lord. We got to get our eyes out. And this, this coincides with giving away what God is doing in us. But guys, this really is what discipleship is all about. Um, we even have a model for discipleship called in, up, out. Brilliant. We love it. But this is what discipleship to Jesus looks like. It looks like examining our hearts, getting our eyes back on Jesus, and then giving it away. So how do we lead our hearts in the waiting? We don't get stuck navel-gazing. We get our eyes up and out. So good. Psalm 51. In closing tonight, um, Joshua, you can come on up. I wanted to just share one story um, that I think encapsulates a little bit of the waiting before we head into response time. And the story comes from March, 2020 and April, 2020. Where were you in those months? Everyone knows, we love it. Talk about waiting. The whole world just sat and waited for a while. You would think we would be good at waiting because of that. But I was in discipleship school at the time. Um, and honestly, God had been doing a lot in my heart in discipleship school. Like a lot of painful things, but really good things. He has a way of doing that. Um, in sorrow and suffering, there's also like this joy that God releases in us, which makes no sense to me, but it's beautiful. And I remember that we were on lockdown and I lived with a couple other girls and we lived in Mesa in this slightly sketchy place in this tiny little apartment. And we were under a stay at home order. And so most of us lost our jobs. Most of us had no money. And we're in this like 900 square foot apartment. Malia was there, she knows. 
it was small. We couldn't really go walk outside because Arizona, and it was, it was rough. But I remember that the Lord so quickly in that season impressed on my heart that I just needed to wait on Him and that I needed to give Him more space than ever in the waiting. And so quite literally, I would go, we had like a little stairwell outside. And so to like have some privacy, because I shared a bedroom, I would go sit on these stairs outside and it was great. It smelled like weed most of the time, but you know, God met me there on the stairwell. And I would go sit there for like two or three hours at a time. And I didn't have an agenda. Like everything about my life had stopped. But what's ironic about that is it didn't actually make the waiting easier because I had all this time because waiting was a posture that I had to choose to put myself in. And so I would sit there and I would just wait on God. Again, like I said, stillness and silence with God, not what I'm good at. But I went today and I pulled out the journal um, that I had in that season. And it's crazy, like what God was downloading and speaking to me in that season. And so clearly the promise of the Lord, He was like, if you will wait with me in this season, if you will do the heart work with me now, when the next season comes, you will run. You won't stumble into the next season, but we're gonna start running when the new thing comes. And so I sat with God and I waited and I waited and I waited for months. And I remember sitting there and it was the whole thing of like, oh, life will go back to normal in May. And then May was like gone. It was like, life will be good by July. And then like things got worse by July. And it was like, okay, if I keep putting my hope in this waiting for this COVID thing to end, like, I don't know how long we're gonna be waiting. But because I had chosen to wait on the Lord, the work that he was doing in me hadn't stopped in that season. And I remember when the next season finally came, like, I was running, like the places where I'm usually hesitant or where there's like a buildup to change, like none of that was there. What God was doing in me just started happening immediately and quickly um, in ways that I've never experienced before. And I share that story tonight because I think that if we get lost in the waiting, we get lost because we don't actually know when the end of a season is gonna come and the next new thing is gonna arrive. And so if we don't actually stick with God in the journey, we might miss it when the next thing comes because we're still stuck back there in the waiting. We're not keeping up with Him in the waiting. And so we cannot give ourselves to this passive waiting because we're gonna miss what He's doing in us. And guys, most of life is in the waiting. And so if we're not with Him in it, we're gonna miss Him. And we're not gonna make it for the long haul because if we miss him, there's nothing to keep us in the journey. And I love what Chris talked about last week that we don't chase encounters with God. Those aren't the places that build our faith. Those are the places that propel us into the next thing. But we have to learn how to meet with God in the in-between spaces. And so tonight, quite simply, I want us to engage in the waiting with God. I'm gonna pray for us in just a second, but as simple as that sounds, it's not a passive waiting. It's not a sitting around, God show up someday, speak to me. We're gonna pursue God. We're gonna be looking for Him and waiting for Him with expectancy. Would you guys stand with me? Father, I just ask for soft hearts. Father, we just ask that in the places where we feel stuck or disillusioned, in the places where we desperately need you to show up, God, would you give us the grace to press into the waiting? God, would you teach us how to be given to a spirit of repentance and a spirit of thanksgiving? God, would you show us your face in the middle of the journey and of the process, God? 
God, would you come and would you renew us so we not miss out on the work of renewal that you're doing in the day-to-day, Father. And Father, I just even pray that you would download tonight just vision for the new thing that you're doing in each one of us, God. But Father, would you come? Would you come? Thank you that you're running and chasing after us, God. God, I pray that that tonight that we would do the same, God, that you wouldn't be the only one doing the pursuing, but God, would we choose to pursue and lean in in the midst of the waiting, in the middle of the journey. And so God, we, we just invite you. We invite you to come in Jesus' name. As we head into response tonight, I didn't feel like there was a lot of specific direction from the Lord, but if God was tugging on your heart at any point, we talked about a lot of different things tonight, then lean into that. He's already speaking to you. You don't need a sign in the sky for it to be the Lord. If there's a tug there, then lean in and respond there. But if you're a little bit like, I'm not totally sure which direction to go. I felt like there was this place that the Lord was like, take out Psalm 51 tonight. If you need to pull it up and spend some time reading that. Um, And even the Psalms are beautiful to pray. And so that heart cry of creating me a new heart, God, would you come? Would you grant me a willing spirit? Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? If those are things that your heart needs tonight, then lean into it. Lean into that prayer with the Lord. Um, But Also, if the practice of thanksgiving resonated with you or repenting as well, lean in, lean in. There's a lot of different ways to respond to God tonight. Um, But let's not leave this place without pressing in to the waiting with the Lord.